0: the lovers of the blue and white, it's time once again for UConn 360. That's the only podcast ever created, ever imagined, that covers the University of Connecticut from every conceivable angle. Ever
1: imagined? We don't know about that.
0: I'm confident in stating that. But
2: now everyone knows it because we've seen the advertising for it. That's true.
1: We have a patent.
0: There's (laughs) Copyright. There's there's been print ads. There's been bus ads. There's online ads. It's been great. Uh, At least on campus it's
2: been (laughs) great. At least on campus
0: it's been great. Well, the internet's everywhere. Um, True. I'm. My name's Tom Breen, and uh, I'm your facilitator of sorts on this magical journey into learning. Joining me, as always, Julie Bartuka. Hello. Ken Best. I'm here. And we have a humdinger of a program for you <laughs> this we week. Do we do? We absolutely do. There's <laughs> Seven lo- the
1: bar high.
0: Lots of exciting news. There
1: is exciting news. That's one thing. That's for sure.
0: And why don't we jump right into that? Why don't we jump into these husky headlines? Don't keep the people waiting, Julie. What's happening?
1: <laughs> well... Plastic bags are happening or not happening happening. anymore at UConn. They've become a thing of the past in Dining Services' retail and grab-and-go locations as of the start of the semester. This change is, of course, part of the university's ongoing sustainability efforts and is the result of a joint effort between Dining Services and the Zero Waste Campaign of UConn Perg student-run activism and advocacy group. Brown paper bags that are 100% recyclable and reusable will now be available for sale for 10 cents each in the Union Central Exchange in the Student Union. This move is reflective of other eco-friendly changes Dining Services has made over time, such is eliminating the use of plastic trays and straws during the 2017-2018 fiscal year. Dining services used approximately 385,000 plastic bags, so this will be a nice reduction in that waste.
0: Wow, very environmentally friendly. <laughs> I've I have taken to carrying a tote bag that I won in a bar trivia night. Good for you. Now that the plastic bags are gone.
2: Ken. Soon, in, soon in, in town here, there will be no plastic bags at nope. the supermarkets. Big anywhere. lie.
1: Getting rid of them.
2: What a paradise
0: we will inhabit <laughs> on that day. <laughs> Ken, what's
2: going on? I actually have a couple of items. The first one is actually taking place the day after this goes up online. The Asian Maritime Panel. Uh, is going to take place on Thursday, February 7th at 4 o'clock at the Conover Auditorium at the Thomas J. Dodd Research Center here on campus. Alexis Dudden, who we had not long ago talking about North Korea and Japan, which is she is an expert on as a history professor, there's going to be a discussion about the, the seas of Northeast and Southeast Asia, on strategic and international law issues involving American and Chinese competition over the Western Pacific to uh, humanitarian and environmental issues like human trafficking and the depletion of fisheries. We have a stellar group of experts uh, moderated by Kathleen Stevens, who was the ambassador to the Republic of Korea. We also have James Kraska from the U.S. Naval War College, Lee Sung Yoon, who is with the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts, Jeffrey Gresh, who is the Department of International Security Studies at the National Defense University, and our alum, Kevin Everingham, who's a specialist in Asia-Pacific Defense in the United States Department of Defense. So it's going to be a pretty high-level discussion. And another one of our former podcast guests, or previous podcast guests, I should say. Robert Thornton, who told us about Henry David Thoreau, was elected into the American Antiquarian Society, one of the oldest scholar societies in the United States, and it was founded in 1812. Uh, he's in good company in membership, though. Daniel Webster, Alexander Graham Bell, Doris Kearns Goodwin, Walter Cronkite, wow. former President Bill Clinton, and Jimmy Carter. Pretty good uh, company to be keeping. Yeah, very All much. Right. Tom.
0: I have two things. A quick thing. I want to thank Professor Murphy Sewall, who's an emeritus professor of marketing, who after last episode's Tom's History Corner about uh, weather closing, he sent me along uh, an, an email from the year 2000. There was a um, university student health services employee named Sinara Stites, and I apologize if I'm getting that name wrong, who uh, every winter storm would send on a listserv a poem that she wrote.
1: Oh, fun. Called
0: Yukon Never Closes. <laughs> it's, I'll post the whole thing uh, on our page, but uh, I just want to read the first and the last stanza. This is back, by the way, when Yukon never closed. Closing Yukon will not suffice. Come hurricanes, snowstorm, or even ice, closings are for airports, schools, and daycare. Well, Yukon employees must be there. <laughs> So, when the weather is really, really bad, wondering if UConn will close is rather sad. Because, as every citizen in the Nutmeg State knows, the University of Connecticut will never close. Wow. So, thanks to uh, Professor things Suall. Things have changed. And that things, boy, things have changed. That's great. You know, I love it. I want to read it. Glad you brought up change. <gasps> because. Big change. Big change. Um. This feels rather naughty, because as we record this, this news has not gone public, but as you listen to it, it will be old news. So we're simultaneously breaking an embargo and being behind the news. <laughs> uh,
2: Only we could do that on the podcast. That's right. Yep. It's, that's no the, place else in the world can you, you be behind and ahead
0: at that's the same right. time. It's incredible. UConn's 16th president has been announced. I hope so. Otherwise, <laughs> I'm in a lot of trouble. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we'll
1: make sure before this goes anywhere. This
0: is UVA Provost Tom Katsulaas. Prior to being provost at UVA, he was the dean of the School of Engineering at Duke University. And before that, he was a faculty member and administrator at University of Southern California. And before that, he got his start at UCLA. Wow. So he's an avid uh, sailor, lover of the water, was an ocean lifeguard for 30 years, Hmm. comes with the highest academic credentials. He's an engineer, studies plasma.
2: We have water on campus. We yeah.
0: have two lakes. Well, <laughs>
1: he can sail on Mirror Lake. I'm pretty yes. excited. About,
0: I think he's probably pretty excited about Avery Point.
1: Mm, I'm sure he is. I would be if I'm, I was a sailor.
0: I believe UVA is landlocked. Not us. We have a coastal outpost. We
1: do, guys. We have a coastal campus. But
0: no, that's, uh, that's, that's big news. That our, si- our 16th president. Although there's some dispute over that numbering, which I could probably talk about at some always, point. Always. Always a dispute Tom over, over a corner. numbering. Welcome. Welcome. President Designate Katsulaeus. And also, uh, we'll, we'll be getting a new provost. Speaking of changes, Provost Craig Kennedy announced that he's going to be stepping down because he wants the new president to be able to choose a provost. So that will be, I guess, one of the first big important decisions that President Katselas makes.
1: Mm-hmm. Looking forward to that.
0: Absolutely. You know what else I'm looking forward to? What? I'm looking forward to this week's stories. Me too.
2: Ken, what are we going to hear this week? Well, this week uh, we're going to hear from someone who's been here before on campus, a very fine and talented performer on Thursday February Fourteenth, Valentine's Day, at the Jorgensen Center for the Performing Arts, uh, is one of the stops for the world tour of "I'm With Her," which is a critically acclaimed uh, group uh, that has just really been formed uh, within the last couple of years. But decided to they decided to record and do a tour. The group is a trio of musicians who, who are well known in their own right: Sarah Watkins, Sarah Jeros, and Ifa O'Donovan. Uh, They're multi-Grammy award winners with nine solo recordings to their credit, and they are the co-founders of two seminal acoustic bands, Nickel Creek and Crooked Still, and they have been performing as guest artists with other prominent musicians. Their debut recording... See You Around has been critically praised by The New York Times, Rolling Stone, Variety, NPR's World Cafe, and others for its exquisite musicianship, soaring harmonies that are compared to the Everly Brothers, which is pretty big praise. The recording was produced by Ethan Johns, who has produced some recent CDs by some folks you might know, Ryan Adams and Paul McCartney pretty good company. Sarah Watkins was here a couple of years ago with Patty Griffin and Anais Mitchell as part of the Use Your Voice Tour when we were getting out to vote in 2016. I spoke with her then for a UConn Today story, but I caught up with her recently to talk about I'm with her.
3: each other for a long time, all of uh, Sarah, Yifa, and I. Every band has to start at some point. For us, there was quite a clear moment when we were sharing the stage, uh, doing a workshop, and really enjoyed the tiny bit of rehearsal that we did together and loved singing together, and we did a tiny little set that night, like a 20-minute set of songs that, that we could put together pretty quickly, and after that initial experience, we knew that we wanted to do more of it and at that moment we didn't know oh we want to be a band and we want to put on a record we want to tour but we didn't know that we wanted to do more shows and started planning our schedule figuring out when we were all available to do things and as we did more shows we became much more convinced that this is something we wanted to invest you know a lot more time doing
2: from my reading, you you started doing some cover tracks together just to get sort of going on that first set that you had to do, and it took a little bit longer to get into the songwriting phase because uh, it's I don't know that it's unusual, but there's you're all credited on the songs. Most often in a collaboration, someone writes a song and you you bring the others in and you work it out, and then someone else brings in the song. But this seems to be a real team partnership effort.
3: Very true. Yeah, the the first couple of years that we were a band, we didn't uh, get together to write. We were really enjoying uh, playing cover songs. So, you know, as we first came together, we brought songs that, that we wanted to sing, you know, a John Hyatt song, a Tom Brousseau song, etc. And we worked them up and arranged them. And playing traditional and playing cover songs is not unusual in our collective genres. And, you know, an appreciation of of other people's material and of traditional material is a huge part of our, the the traditions that we come from. And so that wasn't terribly odd. And I think it really did play in our favor. We've discussed that uh, amongst ourselves that we think it really did play in our favor when, when it did come down to sitting down and writing together, because, we knew each other quite well by that point, musically as well as personally, and we knew how to communicate, we knew how to how to arrange songs, what we liked. We had an idea of what our band sound was at that point, and I think that made writing a lot easier because we weren't starting from a completely blank slate. We were able to already have a, a way of communicating and a shared common goal for our standard of material.
2: It was John Paul Jones that produced one of your albums. That's correct, yeah. And uh, he's, of course, known mostly for, for his work with Led Zeppelin. E- Ethan Johns, your producer for this album, has really done a wide range of folks as well. Uh, everyone from Paul McCartney and Kings of Leon to Tom Jones and, and Crowded House. How did that work out for him making decisions with you guys? Uh, because this is really an acoustic album, and uh, you've got a lot of instruments that you could work from.
3: We wrote the song uh, with, with the arrangements pretty intact. Ethan, you know, I think his, his speciality is capturing live performances and the dynamic that can happen in that style of recording. He was very uh, effective in helping us with, the kind of uh, perform the songs in a kind of way that would capture the range of dynamic and this, this intimacy that is possible but hard to do in the studio. And I think he's you know among the best at that. And we wanted the album to be focused on how we sound as a band without adding too much. There is a little bit of supplemental instrumentation that you'll hear on the record, but by and large the songs are carried by the performances that we did in the moment. And with the exception of one song we performed all of those songs, vocals and instrumentals, together. And then, you know, maybe we added a little piano or, or maybe Ethan played a little dobro or something, but or pump organ. But um, by and large, these songs were performed in the studio.
2: It's an intimate album when you listen to it. And from knowing that you were pretty much in the studio looking at each other, which is not always the way production gets done these days, uh, it seemed that there was a real connection that you could hear in the songs.
3: Absolutely. I think that process, it brought us closer together as individuals and as a band, even more so than the touring and the writing of the album. That was the cornerstone of, of us finding our our unity in the studio.
2: You've been on the road for a while now. How Have things uh, settled in as much as you hoped that they would as you go to this part of the tour?
3: Absolutely, things have settled in, and to the point, you know, I think that... that We're going to be shaking it up a little bit and adding some new material, working up a couple of, you know, some new songs and expanding the set list a little bit. The the tour will be slightly different than anyone. Anyone who saw earlier tours of of the 2018 tours will, if they come back, they will see a very different kind of show. And we're really excited for that experience. It'll be a much more intimate kind of performance in a lot of ways. We're really looking forward to, you know, having, having a, a different kind of experience than, than the, the tour that we, we absolutely settled into last year. I just want to encourage people to come back to the show because there, there will be some new songs and a much different kind of performance.
2: So you've been writing on the road together, uh, working out new things?
3: We wrote uh, a little on the road last year, and uh, we worked up a couple new songs. We, we have a couple that we're, that we're planning on working up before uh, the tour starts, and I think it'll feel very fresh.
2: Well, not to look too far ahead, but I know uh, most of the time uh, musicians are looking forward to getting uh, through the tour and then thinking about maybe the next project. Would I be correct in thinking three of you will maybe take a break and then come back together again in the studio, or would you separate and then come back together after that with new ideas?
3: all very committed to this band, and uh, I think people are are going to see um, another album from us, but at this point, I think after this tour, I think we're going to make way for a couple other things that we all want to do, some other projects, um, as we are all very keen on collaboration and and invested in our solo albums and solo tours, we're going to to make some time for, for those things as well.
2: And that's uh, that's Sarah she's uh, she really nice and so she's so talented.
1: Great. I actually recently became aware of her and I'm with her. I saw her on uh, what is it that Chris Dealy does
2: Yes Chris Deely was with Nickel Creek yes. she Sarah and her brother Sean were with Since Chris. they were
1: children, yes. all of them.
2: Yes, they're, they're quite talented. And so Chris, of course, with the Punch Brothers, they were here on campus last year. But on his show, what does he do for uh, NPR? Uh, I'm drawing a blank. The, the NPR show is live from here. It's yes. the successor to Prairie Home Companion.
1: It's on YouTube, and it's awesome. And she right. sings on a lot of those. And so I've been watching some of those. And then I just watched the Tiny Desk concert of I'm With Her, which was Incredible. Their harmonies are Everly Brothers-esque. Wow. Very, very good. I highly recommend them. And their name predates the whole Hillary Clinton thing. Just yes, so you does. know, I looked yes. into it.
2: They uh, performed in Europe last year. After they leave stores, they're going around the country. Ryman Auditorium in Nashville. Oh, wow. House good of deal. Blues in Boston. Kennedy Center in Washington. And Red Rocks in Colorado. That's big time stuff.
1: And the Jorgensen Auditorium.
0: Then they go to that.
2: Australia. Cool. So this is one stop on the world tour.
1: Yeah, I'll try to get tickets, I think.
0: I'm going to have to expand my palette of listening. You
1: because should. I don't know if it's your style. I'm not only, really I, punk rock enough for you.
0: I only listen to Grindcore, but I'm willing to expand. <laughs> you to don't out.
1: listen to Grindcore. Of course I do. No, you don't.
0: Um, Julie. <laughs> yep. Uh, Grindcore denialist Julie Bartuka, <laughs> what story do you have for us this week?
1: Oh, my God. Um, I talked to the... Associate Dean for Humanities and Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion for CLAS, Kathy Schlund-Viles. She's also the Interim Director of the Women's, Gender, and Sexuality Studies Program and a Professor of English and Asian Asian American Studies. Schlund-Viles, whose research interests include 20th century U.S. literature, multi-ethnic literature, nationalism, trauma, human rights, and immigrant refugee narratives, says she came to her profession kind of by accident. While she was an undergrad at the University of Texas at Austin, she worked taking customer complaints for a what she calls terrible pizza chain and heard about 200 complaints a night, which she says taught her something about the human condition and got her thinking about going to graduate school. A first-generation college student, she had no idea how to approach the school search and applied to four schools that had been in recent NCAA basketball Final Fours. Shlund Viles chose UMass Amherst, and while pursuing her degree, she saw a future in her part-time job as a bouncer, bartender, and barback in Northampton, Mass., and she said she wasn't very committed to academia. Thankfully for us, that changed somewhere along the way. We talked about her popular Asian American literature class, the personal nature of her work, and her struggle to make sure people like her parents can understand her research, which includes current projects titled Prosthetic Ecologies, Disability, Environment, and Human Rights, and Militarized Excess you are very prolific and you have a broad range of specialties so how did you go from you know kind of <laughs> you're in grad school you're like I'm gonna work this far from uh, and now you're this you know you've published all these different things oh on. my
4: gosh well that's a good question I think that like if one were to look at me in graduate school and my CV and then look at it now it's like two very different people. When I was in graduate school, I started out as a Victorian literature person. Okay. So I was a British lit person, and it was just really alienating. I was pretty ambivalent. And I took a course with a professor who would be my mentor in ethnic American literature, and it was the first time I saw people like me, um, women of color Mm -hmm. in a text, and so I pursued that. But when I was going through graduate school, I really liked the teaching. But I hadn't really found a way to get at the research. And it wasn't until I had gotten my first job in Erie, Pennsylvania, that things started clicking with regard to Cambodian-American stuff. Actually, like, that project started out through hip-hop because I like hip-hop. I'm the least hip-hop person, but (laughs) I like it. Um, And the project grew from that. I interviewed Cambodian-American rappers, hip-hop artists. So that actually guided what I was going to do. But one of the struggles that I have is this disconnect between my research and the rest of who I am. With regard to my research, it's all quite personal. Mm. So it's, um, you know, it comes from an experience of having a first-generation immigrant parents and also having parents who are working class. So I try to, you know, kind of Do them right and pay homage through my research. People say all the time, "Oh, you're so prolific," and I don't feel that way. This
1: Asian American literature class you teach is very popular. It was featured in the magazine as a coveted Mm. class, which is like these cool classes that we have here. What are the goals of that class? What do you hope to the students get out of it?
4: Well, I think that you know, and I'm I'm lucky to teach this course, right? Like, um, you know, I don't take that for granted. My first job was in Erie, Pennsylvania. And I mean, I loved my colleagues and the students were awesome, but I think I was one of two Asian Americans in Erie.
2: Um, and I, in the whole city city. city. and I,
4: which is cool, you know, like it was great in terms of like what I want people to get out of the course is that, you know, there, I think that there are three things. One, I really want people to see that Asian American literature, and I've stressed this before, is U.S. literature. So even though it has this designation that is, quote, ethnic, you know, in scope, it's actually mainstream, right? Like, so the struggles, the challenges, the themes, they are relevant to people. Mm -hmm regardless of if they're asian american or not so that's one goal the more important goal i think is to actually work with students so that they can develop an engagement that reflects their interests right so the course uh, is a gen ed not everybody's an english major nor would I wish that on people. You know, I've, I've got people who are in education, people who are in journalism. And so, you know, kind of the task before me is to make that relevant to them. You know, if you're pursuing education, maybe secondary education for a final project, you do a lesson plan and you outline that. Or if you're, you know, a journalism major, maybe you want to write a story about UConn about the Japanese American students or interview people. And the third thing is that a course like this allows me to actually talk to students in a way that nobody ever talked to me. My largest class was 550 at UT Austin, so that was the average class. Wow. My smallest was 75. So I never really got to know professors. And I find that for the amount of money people pay to come here, You deserve the advising. You deserve the mentoring. The happiest I am is when I see somebody actually do things I never envisioned. One of the things that is really striking when I'm teaching is that there's a way in which a lot of students think that they are not historical subjects, and part of the goal is to actually have students see not only do their experiences matter, but their family histories matter. So I think that that is something that I try to model. That was something that was not accessible to me when I was an undergraduate, so I I had a pretty traditional degree plan. I was pursuing Victorian literature in part because there were no faculty of color right? There was nobody teaching Asian American literature. So I never even thought that was a possibility. So I think that just kind of understanding what brought me into being is very self-absorbed. And that's actually what's guided me. All of us, I think, have family members who don't tell you the full story. Mm So my job is to kind of fill in the gaps and what I found is that even though people might think they lead ordinary existences, oftentimes they are kind of part of an extraordinary story.
1: You have all these different kind of deep dives into very specific phenomena or um, concepts and how do those deep dives into specific pieces of history help us understand our world?
4: I will say that, you know, my teaching persona is very different from my research persona, which is sad. Mm-hmm. Um, because I I I think that my father said it best. It, you know, like my writing, uh, academic writing is like reading stereo hookup instructions because it's so jargony, <laughs> and that's actually a struggle I am dealing with. So my father, who I'm very close to, he was a career Air Force person. He was in the military for thirty years. Uh, his job was to load munitions onto planes that then flew over Southeast Asia. Right, so. You know, in in some ways, like because I'm Southeast Asian American, Cambodian American, born at the end of the Vietnam War, my father was very intimately tied to that conflict. And so the project that I'm looking at, I I call it Prosthetic Ecologies because it sounded amazingly (laughs) obtuse. Um, But what I'm looking at is just like kind of the legacy of violence in that area, whether it be Agent Orange exposure Amputees in Laos because of unexploded ordnance. Um, these are things that I have. Considered from an academic standpoint, but then from a personal standpoint, I have a lot of health issues. I actually have early onset osteoporosis, I'm disabled, and this was not something that I thought would happen when I was in my mid 40s. And the more work I do, like the more I'm realizing that people in my generation who live near Air Force bases or who were like products of war oftentimes have higher rates of. Cancer, brittle bones, etc. So there's a very personal reason why I'm pursuing this. And I've talked about this before, but my adoptive mother, who's Japanese, she lived 20 miles outside of Nagasaki when the bomb was dropped. She was 11 years old. And none of the women in her family could have children. And that's one of the reasons why she and my father, who's an American, as I mentioned, sought to adopt. And it's those legacies that actually matter. And this is not just about war. I mean, I think that. You could look at environmental degradation in the United States and and map that. So that's what I'm struggling with is to kind of bring this all together so that it doesn't seem like a boutique, you know, like very esoteric Mm -hmm. project. Mm -hmm. The other project is on military culture and comics um, and -hmm. video games. So I like to play video games. I love reading comics. And one of the things that really struck me is that most of the scholarship about war, particularly U.S. war, spends a lot of time on the spectacular, right? Like, so it's about the huge bombings, etc. But for military personnel, it's really about the mundane. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to consider the mundane and like the everyday in this project. And that's a project that's very much linked to my father, because he was a career military person. But one of the struggles I have with both, because they're, you know, connected to my parents, is that I write things that they can't understand. And this is something that Viet Nguyen talks about. The reason why he turned to fiction and literature, he won the Pulitzer in 2016, is that he could no longer communicate with his mom. And his mom was having some profound memory issues. And that's actually something that I've been dealing with with my father, who as a military person was so precise with language. And he is struggling a lot with basic language. He's incapable of remembering. And so there's an urgency. It happens all the time, but I never really thought that would impact me. So the project has to now, both of them have to take different forms. I don't know if I'm going to do the project the way I envisioned it. It's not going to be like other works because I think that, you know, not that my parents can read my work, but I would like to have it so that They could see themselves in it Mm -hmm. as opposed to being absolutely removed. And that's like kind of the academic impulse is to be objective. And for the humanities, it's a big problem. You know, the question that you asked about like what you want students to get out Mm -hmm. of the class is actually the question that should guide our research as opposed to what I've spent a lot of time doing, which is keeping them very distinct.
0: That was great and I just want to say that I've worked with Kathy in her capacity as the person in charge of the Yukon Reads program. She
4: does a lot
1: of things here.
0: She's great. Really like Kathy.
1: She um told me that she still hopes to open a bar one day. So that dream has not gone anywhere.
0: All right, it's time to go to Tom's History Corner. Yes. And let's uh let's call this episode of Tom's History Corner. I guess that's why they call it The Blues. <gasps>
2: Good one. You're Elton John now? Yeah, oh
0: yeah. He's a popular grindcore artist. I don't know if you guys know,
1: Tom's wearing really goofy glasses right Mm -hmm. now. He's standing Mm -hmm. on top of the table for some reason.
0: I listen to grindcore and Elton John. (laughs) So Yukon's colors, what are they?
1: Blue and white. And red sometimes. Mm.
2: National flag blue and white.
0: Mm, Are they? Have they always been that way? You didn't ask
1: if they've always been that way. You asked what they are.
0: So in 1947, President Jorgensen... I don't know why, but he decided, he's like, hey, uh, what are our colors? So everyone was using blue and white, but all kinds of different shades of blue. And he's like, find out. How long have we been using blue and white? So Walter Stemmons, who wrote uh, the standard history of Yukon until Bruce Stave's book, uh, decided to look into it. And he, he basically uh, found out that the colors blue and white had been adopted in the 1890s. Everyone pretty much agreed on that. Because this was 1947, he was able to interview uh, students from the 1890s, grads, I, I I should say. We didn't have any students from the 1890s still matriculating. <laughs> In 1947. It was only 2 years' school. That's right, exactly. (laughs) So that seemed like the the matter was settled until after he published his findings. And then uh, someone wrote in to say, hey, at the 1847 reunion, there were people who brought some class memorabilia, class badges, and the color was imperial blue, which is a very light blue, almost powder blue.
2: Did
1: you say 1847? We didn't exist in 1847. There was a
0: 1947 class reunion. Okay. I think probably a 50th reunion. So the class of 1897. Sorry. That's all right.
1: don't no, no. <laughs> want the angry people writing in. I know. Fix,
2: fix that one with an edit. Yes. No, that's going to stay.
0: So anyway, so th- the point is, for a long time, the colors weren't standardized. It was blue and white, but blue means a we lot of different We didn't have brand
1: things. standards back then. We
0: sure didn't. So, And this was intolerable to Albert Jorgensen. He said, you know what? Enough. We're going to get some standards. Actually, apparently- He would have liked our office. He would have loved our office. Actually, apparently the reason, the thing that really motivated him was it was time to order new- um, uh, uniforms for the marching band. Oh, so the question was, what color should we get it in? And he said, we're going to put this to rest. We're going to determine our official color. Nice. So it's a university. So naturally, he formed a committee <laughs> to study it, and they went to the American Thread Company in Willimantic, which was still cool. in business, and they met with the head chemist of the thread company to look at all different shades of blue, and the one they ultimately settled on was called Homage Blue, which was basically a navy blue. Hmm. And they presented their findings, and the trustees uh, actually went with uh, a shade lighter blue called National Flag Blue. Oh. Uh, according to – it was National Flag Blue uh, according to the Standard Color Card of America, which was the standard reference Pre-Pantone. Chart. Pre-Pantone reference system for colors. This is going to be important. Because, it is
1: important. Keep yes. that in mind.
2: There must be something coming
0: later. Yes. So, uh, But the problem was there's so little difference between national flag blue and uh, homage blue. The reason the trustees chose national flag blue, by the way, is they liked the name better.
1: Yeah, makes sense.
0: And midnight blue was also basically the same color. So okay. the university just – people just kind of used a navy blue, mm-hmm. whatever it was. So there was really no standardization. Um, multiple colors, multiple flags were used until the 1980s. Athletic director Tim Tolican, who some of us remember, said enough is enough. We're going to get standardization. <laughs> So they, Tim Tolikan rediscovered the trustee's action of 1952 in which National Flag Blue was selected. Now, under modern color standards, we don't use the American color card anymore. The standard uh, is Pantone, which is a proprietary system owned by the Pantone Company of New Jersey. Mm-hmm. There's another New Jersey restaurant where you can. Um,
1: <laughs> I wish you all could have seen Ken's face just now. The, the, cl-
0: <laughs> the closest thing to National Flag Blue is uh, Pantone number 289.
1: Yes. Pantone number two eighty nine is almost black in print. Also, just just a keynote.
0: So, that's a good point because Pantone two eighty nine was used for athletics, but vision. not for anything else. No, for everything else, another shade was used. Um, Pantone two eighty one, mm-hmm. which was lighter. Until, right until we what, switched three years ago, three, four years th- ago, five years ago, twenty fourteen, when we switched again.
1: Yeah, two eighty nine.
0: Two eighty nine. And uh, we also added uh, gray, I think, mm-hmm. for the visual identity, and red sometimes accent colors. You guys
1: are getting a real deep dive into what we do sometimes with colors. The point <laughs> is, <fun stuff. laughs> uh, we, uh, <laughs> wake up, Ken.
0: <laughs> we got it. We got a question on Twitter uh, recently from an alum who wanted to know why there's nothing on the website saying that national flag blue is the official. Color. No, because it's not. Because it's not. It's
1: not called that anymore. And people
0: right? people hate that. He did not like the answer. Oh. Well, um, but to me, it's very interesting. PMS
1: two eighty nine doesn't sound as cool as it doesn't national flag
0: it's, blue. But it doesn't. It's not like we've reject like
2: National No, it just
1: doesn't exist yes. as a thing anymore, right? Well,
2: most of the time, it was when Joe D would say what the colors were on the uniform mm. that Yukon was wearing. He would say national flag blue, national trimmed in national flag blue, and right? And red or whatever yeah. it was. Because because if you,
1: you want to call it that, if that's what it is in your heart, I think we can stand by. Yeah, that. but it, but that it's was just a, not what it's called. No.
0: That was a proprietary name from the old color reference system. Pantone is the system that everybody uses. That's not like a Yukon decision. Right, to be. right. We're does go the off. American no color system exist anymore? It does, but only for the military.
1: Interesting. Yeah. Okay. okay. Uh,
0: so anyway, to sum up, um, and I'm sure this will be very unpopular with alums, our colors are not national flag blue and white. They're just blue and white. It could be any blue. As we learned, the original blue might have been powder blue or imperial blue.
1: I'm glad we we made that change. Yeah, me too. UNC...
0: Right. <laughs> and, you know, in the 1920s, our football team wore orange. So
1: That's just – we've been all over the place. Talk about a lack of standardization. All over the
0: map. Uh, anyway, I hope this segment didn't give you the blues.
1: Yeah. <laughs> See yourself out.
0: If, if you like what you hear, I would ask you to subscribe because uh, I had to um, produce all of our metrics <laughs> for our bosses recently and our subscription numbers. While our download numbers are growing, our subscription numbers are staying rather static. And I don't understand people – who just download every episode maybe without subscribing?
1: Either. How do you even know?
2: How do you even know? I, I want them to listen, no matter how they want to listen. It doesn't that's matter. True. That's that's, true. that's a good point. However, you listen, keep listening.
0: Even if you're overhearing it in a neighbor's house, <laughs> like you're pressing your <laughs> ear up to the screen door. I don't know. Why, I don't know why you do that. They should let you in. They let if you that's you in. the case. Well, we don't know who this person is. Maybe, <laughs> maybe the neighbor's maybe, smartier. Maybe not. Maybe maybe not. <laughs> anyway, if you like what you hear, subscribe or don't. But just keep listening. You can find us on Twitter at UConn Podcast. You can yell at us about the school colors at UConn Podcast. Fine by me. Fine by me. You can find me on Twitter at TJ Breen or at main underscore old, which is the um,
1: best thing Tom does <laughs> it's, I mean, entirely
0: literally. Uh, it's the Twitter account where I just post old pictures of stuff around campus
1: and really interesting facts about them, which is really you're doing the public a service. Well,
0: thank you. Thanks. Uh, Julie, where can people find you and what do you want them to know?
1: At Julie Bartuca on Twitter. I don't think there's anything I want them to know right now.
0: (laughs) Subscribe. You want them to subscribe. I do.
1: I do. I got nothing else.
0: Ken,
2: are you in the Twitterverse yet? Uh, No. no. Not (laughs) in the the near future or even the far future. That's actually wise. Especially since we're pretty terrible It's a pretty, reading, place. What it's a pretty terrible reading. place. It's pretty awful. But you can find me on UConn today, as always. I got bunches of stories I got to finish writing. Too,
1: so. <laughs> we should let you go.
2: And uh, then Fridays at eleven o'clock on ninety one point seven WHUS in stores. UConn Sound Alternative, which is where you can find the UConn three hundred and sixty podcast, the WHUS version.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone, and we will see you in two weeks as we approach our story to one-year anniversary.
2: We're going to have a party?
0: Balloons? You bet cake. we're going to have a party. we going to have to have
2: cake.
1: I wish I had a, one of those sound makers. <laughs>
0: Should put that sound effect in. Put that in, in the budget. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there we go. We don't need it. We've got the Foley actually. <laughs>